forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and the host of a new show called A Nightmare to Date on the app AM. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bi-con, bisexual icon, wink, and I'm hosting a new show on AMP called This Week in Gay. And I stole Allison's intro. You always be stealing my intro. Well, you're first, and then it sparks my thoughts. <laughs> so you never plan ahead of time? <laughs> Why are you asking me Okay. <laughs> so what is your show about? My show is um, a weekly live radio show at 9 a.m. Pacific time on AMP on Thursdays, and it's all about... People coming on, I have a different guest every week and they're telling dating horror stories. But the twist is it's stories when they were the horror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, that's never happened to me, so I can't be a guest. You're um, going to be my, a guest. <laughs> I'm, you're going to be a guest and I'm going to have a like a three page long handwritten list of topic points for me to bring up. <laughs> I'm just going to be dropping names. <laughs> it's time for the airing of the grievances. <laughs> no, I, my show is called This Week in Gay. I give a gay history lesson. I play some gay tunes. I talk about gay news and gossip. And I've been really excited, actually, with the gay history segment because I think it's allowed me to bring to light some notable names that people haven't noted in a while. So that's been super fun. Uh, and also, I have like a weird encyclopedia brain for trivia. So God knows it needs to go somewhere. <laughs> so, yeah, that's those have been fun. Mine's at on Wednesdays at 8 a.m. And I've also like taken to uh, when I'm on it, talking as if I'm a radio DJ. Ooh. Like like playing a song and then being like, that was so. And so it's like, why did I drop into that voice? <laughs> I should be using a voice. I'm going to be British for the next one. I like that. You think what would happen? <laughs> what if we did a whole episode where we were just British and then or even like a whole episode where we just were in a different accent the whole time? I'm not that good at British, but I can do French. Oh, I can't do anything convincingly. So mine would sort of just be a made up accent. Oh, OK. Well, you know, on uh, Star Trek Next Generation, the actress that plays Deanna Troy, they told her. She can't do a British. She has a British accent. They said you can't do a British accent because the lead, John Luke Picard, is going to do a British accent. So you have to do something else. And she was like, OK. And she did this made up accent that she does the entire series. You can never pin it down. You have no idea what this what. Why does she talk like this? The accent is so honestly commit to that. And she committed to it for seasons. She did this accent. That's not I love real. that. But you know what? They're in I space. love that. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, this is just between us a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. This week, we are going to be asking Regina Green and Lynn Harris tough questions about Jewish identity. Pretty good, right? And later, <laughs> I don't know if that's good. Okay. I have no idea. I don't speak French. Okay. I, well, for, if anyone listening to this is French, let us know if that was any good. Also, leave us a five-star review. We don't talk about that enough. But if you could review us, that'd be huge uh, personally for me. Yeah, leave a five-star. Leave us a five-star review. And then in the comments of it, just write, hee, 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 ha, ha, God. Okay. <laughs> Later, we're going to be talking about first impressions and if they matter and how important they are. But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. 
And you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Mysterious name, UK. Bonjour. UK, hit cheerio. Yeah. Hello. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. So the person I have entitled Mysterious Name writes, Hello, Allison and Gabby. First things first, I love the podcast, and it has been wonderful to watch you both grow into the incredible people that you are. Also very excited about your new book, Allison. I have an international question. I live in the UK. My name is obvious from my email address, but I prefer if you just call me a different name if you read this out. Sarah, Natalie, I don't mind. I, Allison, decided to call them mysterious name. Sure. A solid first and last name. (laughs) Mysterious name writes, I'm looking for some advice about how to deal with an issue I've been experiencing for years without realizing. I'm a woman in my early 30s, but in my early 20s, I worked in a not-so-great environment. Some of the men I worked with would comment on my appearance. There were sometimes inappropriate sexual comments, and one man groped me at work. Hmm. It sounds silly, but I didn't realize how bad it was at the time. I partly blamed myself for not being firm enough. I didn't report the incident where I was groped for a few reasons. I felt worried about his future career. I thought he was my friend. I felt I wouldn't be believed or that I would be blamed. The reason I am writing is that I have recently started working with a man who is respectful and professional. After talking to him about work, I started to feel both guilty and anxious. At first, I attributed this to the possibility that being friendly with him could be perceived as flirting and I am in a happy relationship. When I gave myself more time to think, I realized that I had been avoiding anything other than surface-level interactions with male colleagues, and all the negative memories of my previous job felt quite raw again. I found myself in tears about something that I had just brushed off as annoying at the time. Do you have any advice on navigating working with male coworkers? It feels like I'm missing out on opportunities to learn from and collaborate with them because I put up a wall without realizing. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Wow. I want to ping a larger issue here, which is that sometimes you don't realize that you've been traumatized until later. Sometimes it's Mm -hmm. very normal that sometimes something will happen to you in the moment and you'll, because of shock, because of the situation that you're in, where you're being, you know, gaslit into thinking something is normal, whatever it is, like you might brush it off. And then only later will you come to terms with your feelings or realize that it affects you when something similar happens or when you find yourself in a situation that quite literally triggers the memory of it. And I think the human brain does everything it can to justify and rationalize. And so do not feel like weird or like you should have known better or like it's too, you know, late to come to this realization because it's really not people. Things hit you at different speeds and like. That is very, very normal. Definitely. And sometimes our body is responding and not necessarily our minds. And so then it's like, oh, I didn't expect to have this physical reaction. Mm-hmm. But it is it is really important to like honor that and pay attention to that. And so I totally get why you have these walls up, right? And then the question becomes, is it worth tearing them down? And in what scenarios, <laughs> you know, because I think, right. I think the reality is that you probably can't have you know, super healthy, respect flowing both ways relationships with all of your male colleagues in the same way you probably can't with all of your female or non-binary colleagues. And so I think one of the things that that pops out for me is learning to trust yourself a little bit. Your gut. So learning, yeah, like learning that like 
You don't need to have a blanket. I'm going to be friends with all of my male colleagues approach, but that you can maybe take people a little bit more on a case by case basis and see, are they giving you evidence that this is somebody that you can trust, somebody that you can feel comfortable with? On the flip side of that, if they then end up being someone that's not trustworthy and that or someone who does act inappropriately, that that's not your fault, right? Exactly. We all get duped. We all get misled. We all have experiences turn on us in ways that we didn't anticipate. And unfortunately, that is just like a part of life. But I do think that like, if this is something that you want to explore and you feel like, There are some male colleagues in your life who you would like to have more of a relationship with, then I think it is worth, you know, trying to get those walls down a bit with Mm -hmm. maybe the sense that if something like what happened before happened again, then maybe the you of today would respond in a different way than the you of of then. Yeah, I think uh, sometimes and I'm speaking for women and and perhaps people socialized female or even, you know, people any kind of woman or anyone with the experience of of a woman, that scenario where you are balancing polite with friendly, with wondering if it's flirting, is a very tight, very little tightrope. There is this idea that you you don't want to jump to conclusions and come off as rude, or you don't want to put a boundary up, or you don't want to, you know, say something because you need to seem polite and deferential and nice in this way that like, you know, if a male colleague is being friendly with you, a lot of times we have a fawn response, which is to just like smile or giggle. It's built in for protection. And it goes back like literally to evolution. So the problem is, is that when you do feel protective of yourself and you do put up a wall and you do put up a boundary, you feel like, oh, like I'm rude. I'm being wrong. I'm being terrible. Like all the things that you're saying in the email, right? Because you're trained to say, I should be this open, friendly, smiling person, perhaps because of the way you've been socialized. Like I I think part of me is like, if you're at work, it's fine to just talk about work. You know, like I and I think that some stuff I think that like a lot of times people come off as like unfriendly when what they're really doing is just like setting a boundary and also like being like my friends are not at my job. You know, like it's this worry about coming off as like unfriendly or not down or not game or not cool that has somehow permeated the workplace, although not somehow. I know it has. It has since since the dawn of time. But it's just like. It's so sad to me that like while you're doing your job, you also are doing a second job, which is like parsing out human social cues and characteristics and who's safe and who's not and who wants something from you and why do they want it? And are they promoting you for the right reason? And are they mentoring you for the right reason? And it's just like is exhausting and sucks. Yeah, but I think it's like that tricky thing of like her wanting to maybe have closer relationships with some male colleagues. And so maybe what that looks like is still having some sets of boundaries that like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you don't drink around them or be around them when they're drinking or you maybe or be alone. Yeah. Don't be alone with them. And, you know, especially like when other people have gone home, just sort of mm-hmm. like set up some stuff. Make sure that like you've made it clear that they know that you're in that relationship mm-hmm. that you maybe don't veer into too much personal talk that you keep if like what you are interested in is a mentorship that you 
really focus on like work and talking about things that that apply to work and career and growth and in that area of your life, but not letting them into like, oh, and today I had a fight with my mom, you know, like still like maintaining some strong boundaries that I think hopefully you can feel a little more comfortable in, but can still sort of bridge a bit of a gap to like enhance the relationship. It does suck because there is it there is a boys club, right? Like a man your age could go out drinking. And this is a big stereotype, obviously, but like could go out drinking with a coworker and build a friendship that then allows them to get hired for a project. You know, it's it sucks. I I hated hearing in the wake of Me Too, these guys saying, well, now I'm not going to mentor any women like now I'm not going to like, you know, go to lunch with my female colleague and give her advice or whatever, which is to me was like, do you not know how to not rape? Like, (laughs) Like if you go out to lunch with a woman, do you not know how to not say something weird? Like, and, and so it puts the onus on these guys. And then to hear many of them say, I would not like that onus. It's like, oh, well, you're saying the quiet part loud, my friend. So that it, it absolutely sucks. And it perpetuates, you know, even like I was watching this show about Hollywood and the guy was like, why are you even giving me a chance? And the other guy was like, you remind me of me. And I was like, Oh, fucking course. (laughs) Like, and that sucks. It sucks because it's like if you love a similar hobby or something, you can both you both love arcades. It's like, you know, the it's just it just sucks to have to, like, be on their eggshells about this stuff. But some of them have ruined it for the rest of us. Do you think there's any value in, like, talking to other potentially like female or non-binary coworkers about this colleague just to see if they also have get a good sense from him? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the more that you keep in contact with the other people at your job who are like you, whether that's other queer people, whether that's other black people, that's other Latin people, whatever it is, the more you keep in touch with each other at that job, the more you will share in order to protect each other. If you if you're like, look, that colleague's really nice. They did say something super racist to me one time that allows you to have broader context for them and not get you want to be working with all the information. And also, you know, if it's possible, trying to get close with or have mentors who are similar to you, if that's possible at your job. But yes, I do think you should talk to each other. Yeah, right. Because then if it's like you, someone else's, everyone is like, oh, yeah, really great guy. Then hopefully mm-hmm. the the fear is a little lessened. Um, mm-hmm. Not that it would extinguish but right you know and I also think that there's something to be said about being direct with what your goals are with this colleague being like hey I really Mm -hmm. look up to you and I would like for you to mentor me instead of feeling like that stops it in its tracks (laughs) or just like right because then it's like clear why you're asking to spend more time why you're chatting more why you're you know and just by saying I look up to you in a professional role I would like to have a new professional relationship that is mentor-mentee if you're interested. Yes. Could maybe make things a little smoother and cleaner. Yes, absolutely. Great advice. Oh, wonderful. Let's end on that. Um, <laughs> if you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guests, Lynn Harris and Gina Green. So stay tuned. Just between us. 
back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, our guests are Gina Green and Lynn Harris. Gina is a strategist, consultant, movement builder, now helping Jewish and other organizations change through her new firm, Uprise. Lynn is a writer, activist, multi-hyphenate, who uses the power of comedy to drive change. They co-host the podcast, Bintel Brief, an advice podcast with The Forward. Hello. 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 <laughs> Welcome to the show. Uh, we are all Jews. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> the Jewish Mom episode is happening, and we couldn't be more excited. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. So you guys, you know, do this podcast, this advice column, as like the, the Jewish mother, which I think has a lot of stereotypes around it. Uh, some good, some bad. How? What do you think of when someone says a Jewish mother? Oh. Okay, this is not a direct answer to your question. Here's what I think. I think that... There are Jewish people and there are mothers and there are mothers in different cultures and there are people in other cultures who are. I think there is no such one thing as a Jewish mother. I do not. I just don't. Because there are traits that we all know and joke about and share and that are demonstrably true about my mother, about other Jewish mothers. But those traits are shared by mothers who are not Jews, by people who are not mothers. And then those traits are not all shared by, for example, me. And I am a Jewish mother. I release my mm -hmm. children daily into New York City with the ability to ride the subway and use Apple Pay. And I literally do not worry about them all day. I don't. That's partly <laughs> because that's not my jam. And I worry about plenty of things, but not that. And partly because I also trust New York City to take care of them. So maybe if I live somewhere else, that would be different. But I understand where the stereotype comes from. And I'm not saying it is unfounded on its face. I just don't find it unique at all to humans who are Jewish and mothers. Mm -hmm. I think Lynn's probably on to something here, but I will also say that like minorities, we don't get the privilege, if you will, of not being stereotyped, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like it's like, mm -hmm. like the black mom, I'm a black and Jewish, like the black mom has a stereotype too. And I was just saying to a friend of mine the other day that like, Black kids who grew up in the 80s don't have the same Black mother that Black kids growing up in the 2000s have. Mm -hmm. Because even we as parents don't do the things that our Black moms did in the 60s and 70s. So, like, mothers are mothers. Mm -hmm. I just got momentarily angry at the patriarchy because also there's something about this. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. This is only nothing momentarily. different about right. <laughs> just for the moment. Right, right. Then I'll go back to being fully complicit. Um, <laughs> no, th there's something very undermining about making it about making fun of people for taking care of and worrying about their offspring. Mm -hmm. Like that's the job. Like that's yeah. literally the job. So mm -hmm. don't make it cute or funny. It's literally the job. Right. And it gets harder as they age, too. Mm -hmm. Like, let me tell you, when I first had babies or all the books, all the magazines, all the people, they're like, here, here's how to diaper this butt. And then it's like, <laughs> and then they get to 12 and you're like, oh, my God, they've got totally different problems. And keeping them, I mean, like this, I'm being a little glib, but like today was kind of a rough day in my household with my own kids. And so, like, literally keeping them alive right now is different than keeping them alive when they're two. Like, it's hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right about minorities, Gina, and that like there is when I think of other stereotypes of mothers, it is often 
Italian moms or, you know, like I just this is like silly, but I just watched The Offer, which is about the Godfather and these and it's like these Catholic uh, Italians who want to start something to to combat stereotypes about Italians. And I always think Italians and and Jews have a very like funny overlap in terms of the the stereotype of us as like animated and we talk with our hands and we're yelling blah 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 but also like it is true there are traits that are jewish right so i grapple with like being a stereotype and then also being like I, but this is like what we're like exactly like there's an element of truth to every stereotype mm-hmm. right like they don't they actually don't usually materialize out of thin air mm-hmm. there is an element uh, of truth to many of them and then the problem is that they become the definition right the problem is that they become all-encompassing and they don't aren't just the examples mm-hmm. they become the rule yeah well i guess it's the frame or the value that you bring to it right like you wouldn't have stereotypes if you didn't have a shared culture mm-hmm. right and so there's and there's not one monolithic shared culture but stuff we share right whatever that mm-hmm morass of stuff is. So that stuff, those those mix of traits, the mix of characteristics, mix of tendencies, we can kind of recognize and agree on. But then when you start reducing people to that or devaluing those things, that's when you flip the switch to stereotype. And that's when you're like, no. Mm-hmm. Because they're theirs. Because those things belong to those people. Mm-hmm. Right? Like- right. Yeah, exactly. It's because I find it very nice sometimes to have a shorthand within the Jewish community. Like, Things that you can reference, things that you can say that you just like immediately are kind of on the same page about or have understand like in, it's inside jokes in some ways. But like that there is this this really lovely shared Jewish cultural history, whatever that, you know, you can have with people. You meet a Jew from another country, you meet a Jew from another state and you might have a, a lot to talk about. Right. Built in. Mm-hmm. And even within that shared Jewish culture, I think that we can sometimes maybe project some cultural elements to be universal, but they might not always be. And, you know, right. I, I was just in a meeting with someone who was talking about how they weren't sure if they were Jewish enough to be in the space because they didn't have a bar mitzvah. They didn't go to shul all the time. They didn't celebrate all the holidays. They only went to one Seder, da 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 right? So, like, you don't ever want to hear anyone say, are they Jewish enough? Right. Am I Jewish enough? And yet, I think that that is actually something that a lot of modern Jews struggle with. I also wonder what the experience is like between when people can look at you and assume that you're Jewish and when people look at you and don't assume that you're Jewish. Can you speak to that a little bit? You know, I think for me, people often say things in front of me as a Black person, as a Black progressive lefty person. They will often say things in front of me that they would not say if they knew from the outset that I was Jewish. However, I just became a professional Jew, meaning my work in the last four years in the Jewish community and for Ben the Ark Jewish Action very recently and sort of late in my life. So once that happened those things stopped happening. Once I became a public, visible Jew, I wasn't in those scenarios as much where someone was like, oh, I didn't know, da-da-da, right? Like, so... What kinds of things were people saying? Oh, do you really want to know? Yeah, y'all probably do really want to know. Yeah, we do. (laughs) For those of you listening, we have popcorn now. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) 
people have said things about those wily Jews. <gasps> like, oh. Like, 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 yeah, like those types of comments ha- would have happened all the time. I mean, and truthfully, for me, when I go to a black hair salon, which is where I go when I get my hair done, they actually don't know because I could be like, they don't know me from a hole in the wall, except for my particular stylist. Mm-hmm. And so those situations are actually times and places where I might hear some language that I don't want to hear. And that's going to catalyze an uncomfortable conversation. Sometimes I take the bait and sometimes I don't. It mm-hmm. depends on what mood I'm in that day. But I remember thinking I had gone to the salon either like, I think it was it right before the whole Whoopi Goldberg brouhaha earlier this year. And I was like, thank God that I wasn't in the chair, in the salon chair when all of that was going on, because it would have been extremely uncomfortable and a situation that I would have wanted to avoid for sure. Yeah. I mean, you talked a little bit about people feeling that they're not Jewish enough. And I was wondering if you could both speak to what what you witnessed in that regard. Well, for me, it's folks feeling as if their Jewish literacy or their Jewish knowledge is lacking. Like they don't know enough about the holidays. They don't know what to say at this moment in time. They don't know enough about Jewish history. So there's, it's, it's a, it's a deficiency feeling. Like it's a deficient feeling that folks have when they say, am I Jewish enough? Or I, I don't, I don't know if I, if I feel that way. And so, you know, for me as a, as a Black Jewish mom, one of the things that I actually thought very, very consciously about was having children who don't look like a typical Jew and wanting to endow them with every possible guard against that feeling of deficiency, that feeling of otherness, because I knew they already would have that feeling of otherness built in. Mm -hmm. And so Jewish education and Jewish engagement and Jewish community was really, really important to me for for that reason, among others as well. Yeah, for for me personally, I see it on both. Well, there's no such thing as the middle of the spectrum. But where I sit, I see people on either side of me on this spectrum, meaning there are so many people who look at me and say like, oh, I can never be as Jewish as Lynn, which is largely because I'm married to a rabbi. Like they're not actually wondering what my own practices are, <laughs> you know? And then of course, when I, you know, first started, you know, dating or just, you know, being around my husband's friends and whatever, you know, of course that was when I was like, what are they doing during that whole Amidah? You know, like I, so and I'm like, I'm not like that. So it, it, it really proves to me that there's no, th- I mean, you all know this, like there is no such thing as like, there's no like actual measurable saturation point that the universe can of Jewishness, show, of, Jewishness right. of Jewish enough of anything. That's crazy talk, you know, and a very dear friend of mine. Um, hi, Dixie. Um, just had her 60th birthday. <laughs> and on her 60th birthday, she had her bat mitzvah. And Mm -hmm. there was Mm -hmm. much that was traditional about it. There was much that was not traditional about it. It wasn't necessarily by the book, but mitzvah. So on the one hand, you could be like, well, some, some scold can be like, could be like, well, that bat mitzvah wasn't Jewish enough. Right. But then Mm -hmm. on the other side, you could say like, dude, she had a bat mitzvah at age 60 and did all the work. Like how, (laughs) you know, so there's no, there's no, 
actual measure. It hurts my heart a little bit when people say that because I think they think there's a thing. Whereas mm-hmm. right. what the opportunity for them is, and it's not their fault, you know, and but the opportunity for them is to kind of jump in and ask what and find out what would be meaningful to them and realize that no one's going to measure or judge. It's just time for them mm-hmm. to start exploring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do think, though, that there is some real disdain from more religious Jews towards non-religious Jews. Like there feels like there is like a lot of judgment in this community. <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, dude. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah. But it's hard. But like, it's hard to not care yeah. because these are supposed to be your people. I know, that's true. That's true. That's true. These are supposed to be your people. And so it's really hard. And that's another reason why I think, you know, um, I'm also on the board of an organization called the Jews of Color Initiative. And they came out with a study last summer that was talking about the lived experiences of Jews of color. And there, and you know, there's a lot of data in there about how it feels to be in community and space. And I think one of the things that we know is that you want to be, when you're around your people, you want to feel welcomed by your people. Like if these are supposed to be your people, it shouldn't matter the level of observance or the color of your skin or your gender or sex. Like these things should not be factors Mm -hmm. when you're talking about spiritual space Mm -hmm. and so that's like super duper tough and there is a lot of disdain i mean there's a crazy story i might be telling this wrong so i kind of hope my mother-in-law doesn't listen to this episode but there's a story that when she grew up in a an orthodox foster family in england in the 50s and met my father-in-law of blessed memory in israel i believe And he was a reformed Jew from California. She was an Orthodox Jew from England. And there were supposedly segments of the family who sat Shiva for her when she married him. So I've heard of that happening. Oh, yeah. But that was the first time I'd heard of it happening to someone I knew. Sitting Shiva is is implying that she died. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, correct. Yep. She's dead to them. Huh. Yeah. So Allison, I think th- so. So your disdain is, you know, the drama, and Shiva. Right. the right, flair, right, right. the dramatics to go through seven days of Shiva, the sheer theatrics. You got to give it to them a little, <laughs> a little bit, right? Like they really leaned they really in on that. Yeah. I, this is why I will repeat my call. This is why there needs to be more representation of liberal Jews on TV and in public because, and again, liberal Judaism is not the only path. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that when you watch shows like Russian Doll and other shows that incidentally, or even importantly to the plot, have people who are Jewish Mm -hmm. doing Jewish things and caring about it, but not having dumb, trumped up angst about like, you know, stereo- I'm not even going to invoke or imitate the stereotypes about guilt about mm-hmm. eating shrimp on Christmas or whatever it is, right? Like, ugh, boring. But, like, there are few and far between are TV shows or even public celebrations where you see Jews, liberal Jews, just going through their day, enjoying being Jewish and doing Jewy things. Mm-hmm. Even, like, Simchat Torah, right? It's rare to have a liberal synagogue doing, and there's no shade to liberal synagogues. I'm just saying you don't see this. We, we happen to do it in, in our neighborhood, and that's why I love it. Others do. Others definitely do. Public dancing. 
Mm. public dancing of people who don't immediately dress, you know, don't look like the images that people, non-Jews may have in their heads or other Jews may have in their heads of the outfits and the what, you know? So yeah, the more that we, and then mostly, mostly what we see on TV, thank God it's changing, is like the hospital plot where the Orthodox Jew, the can they save his life with a pig valve in his heart, which is not even a thing. Like that's like the only right. thing we ever see. Or we see the angsty liberal Jews like being angsty about stuff that is just not interesting. It's so rare that it's just incidental and nice. Um, well, Love, Simon, another good example. The guy just happened to be Jewish. It was nice. You know, mm. and and I really feel like it's not the only way, obviously, but flight normalization. Yes. And I, th I feel like then there wouldn't be this like bar to measure up to. You'd be just like, oh, well, that's kind of like me. Yeah. I think that the medical shows use it particularly to show that these people are weird and yes. that look at these mm. weird people. And they do it with Muslims, too. Yeah. Oh, look at these people yeah. that are so religious and weird and they won't accept health care. You know what I mean? And it, the assumption is that that you at home are also thinking this is weird. Yeah, correct. Right. Like it must comport yeah. for them to consider continue to use that trope. Yeah. I, I have such a complicated relationship to Judaism in so many ways because my grandmother's a Holocaust survivor. I grew up. We were not religious at all. Then at like age seven, because my dad was a drug addict and an alcoholic, my mom turned to the synagogue. We became extremely religious. I start, went to a Jewish day school, Jewish summer camp. I realized I was queer around like 12 or 13. My The Jewish people in my, my life, my school and everyone was like, no, that's bad. I Len like totally left everything behind, even though I knew all this stuff, which is kind of this strange thing where with other religions, it's not like you are blood this religion. Like it's mm. it's it. That's what's so uh, different to me about Judaism is it's an ethnicity. Like even if you are don't practice anything, you can still like look and be Jewish. And so I sort of was like, I'm getting rid of it. But also I could not ignore that I knew every prayer, that I talk like this, mm. that I, you know, all these sort of things. Then I, w I had a whole thing where I realized that there were synagogues that would accept queer people. But that didn't happen until like the middle of college. And then I kind of like went back to it. And then, you know, there's this very complicated like model minority thing where sometimes the racism is positive. Like I've had friends who are liberal, mm. who are like, woke quote unquote say to me like oh like another Jew in Hollywood and we'll say that like straight faced or you know even people saying oh you know there's the the center of the earth is the conspiracy theorists there's like joking like yeah the center of the earth is a uh, hollow because that's where the the lizard people live oh who are the lizard people oh they're from the Rothschilds oh that's interesting why do you think that mm. and it kind of always comes back to Sneaky Jews being sneaky and running the world. Dude, <laughs> if we were really running the world, like, oh, Things my God. would be God. so much better. It's just, that just falls right? apart on its yeah. face. Like, like, that's the whole <laughs> That's the thing. If Jews Sorry. ran Hollywood, I'd be way more successful. But, like, you know, there's just, like, there's just a lot of stuff that is either, then you face it. And even if I was, like, even at times where I was, like, I don't identify with this. And Judaism kind of actively hates me for being queer in my mind is what I thought, there was still the defensiveness of like, no, no, you don't get to say that we run the banks. So it's like this very mm. complicated relationship. And you were talking about, you know, Orthodox Jews disdain 
for us in recent years, I have felt that like the burden of my own or other liberal Jews disdain for Orthodox Jews. So I would, you know, Mm. like not no shade to my mom, but like when we were kids and we would see them walking to synagogue, we were conservative. We went to a conservative synagogue. We were not Orthodox and we would see them walking to synagogue. And my mom would be like, look at those black hats, which is what you'd call like Chabad or like Orthodox Jews or, you know, the, the sort of like the stereotypes we see on TV or, you know, oh, they're unreasonable. They're so, you know, or they're taking over. That's the other thing. Mm. So then there'll be like these these hidden anti-Semitic things where it's like, oh, well, you know, the Chabad and, and all these Orthodox Jews moved into the neighborhood and they like are ruining the neighborhood, which is the thing you hear all the time now. Mm-hmm. And I feel sometimes a, a burden to defend people who would not defend me, right? Like, I'm like, you know, you don't get to like, in to my face, uh, an Orthodox person might be like, you have tattoos and you're trans, go fuck yourself. And I have my own problems with that. But then to me, I feel like the the obligation to extend love and and feel that they are part of my community and defend them. Yes. Because so, in some ways, they are the ones that are upholding all of the ancient traditions. They are the ones that are making sure Judaism it's, in its purest form stays alive. So it's like this complicated thing of like respecting it, but also feeling like they... I don't know. It's so my whole I don't have an answer. I just like my whole experience and also, you know, being a leftist and having complicated feelings about Israel and Palestine. Like it's all like so fraught for me. Like might I might honestly be the source of my of some of my trauma. (laughs) (laughs) One one super important thing, Gabby, just to just a clarification. It's a received idea, but it's not necessarily an accurate idea that Orthodox or, you know, or the most conservative Jews are represent Judaism in its purest form. That's a mm-hmm. misconception that I want to just kind of help clear up for sure. listeners. Because first of all, if that was true, then they would be sacrificing animals. Just so thank goodness. <laughs> but they would be the ones sacrificing them in the World Cup. Like, well, yeah. I mean, so they would be the ones still right. doing it. To, to, yeah, to, yeah, I mean, yeah. They do other things in place of Correct. I'm just Correct. saying. That like, was sort of a flip joke. That was sort of a flip joke. But <laughs> but the point is that it's not, there are traditions that were developed later as well. So it's, a, it's all a big mash of different things. That's not a negative statement at all. My clarification is not a, a negative statement. Um, I want to pull the strands apart. Because it's one of those misconceptions that actually undergirds the other misconception that one can be not Jewish enough. Right. And I have them on a pedestal. Right. And so, of course, there are things that are that are come from older and come things that come from newer, but they're all and I'm not doing a very good job explaining it, but nor do I have all the knowledge to explain it. But I just wanted to kind of push on that one a little bit. Also, I think a helpful metaphor is family, you know, for what you're saying, Mm -hmm. Gabby. You know, where you don't necessarily defend everything in your that everyone in your family does. You may not like everything that everyone in your family does. You may not even speak to people in your family. You may hate people in your family, but they're family. Mm-hmm. And so it's to me, that's uh, I'm not speaking to you, Gabby. I don't I don't I'm not analyzing you. But I mean, for for how one feels the mixed feelings that you're talking about, the metaphor here, yeah. of course, is Jews as family, where you you know, you can have all sorts of anger or reservations about the actions of certain members, but you're still you can still be like, hey, back off their family. It's also like I can talk shit, but no one else can. Yeah, kind of thing. exactly. Well, it's kind of true about your sister, or yeah, your brother. Right. Like, yeah. I can I can beat you up at home. Right. But 
but the bully at school better not touch you. Right. Right. I was going to say, there's also this piece that is the the tradition mm-hmm. and the people. Right. Two different right? things. And the respect for the tradition supersedes perhaps any individual indiscretion of folks that you might come across in everyday life, right? So maybe that's what's also coming through at the same time when you're feeling this defensiveness and oh, protectiveness. I think we as Jews are extremely nervous. Right? We like, are, I think there's, at least for me, a jump to defensiveness very quickly. If someone is against, you know, if laws are made or if someone is against super Orthodox Jews, I'm thinking how soon till they get to me. Whereas, you know, the anti-Semitism is not just going to stop at those people. The anti-Semitism comes for you all. You know, you're not you're not a, a, a good Jew, a special kind of Jew that they're not going to target <laughs> if they're anti-Semitic. Yeah, so you just have part. to, which like, obviously we we know from the Holocaust, which I think, again, is like this shadow over everything that makes us so defensive as a community. And like, I always used to joke that like, I think a lot of us in our minds, it's hard, again, like, Because there was this big pushback that was like, American Jews are Americans. We are Americans. That is our only loyalty, right? Because everyone got real nervous. And then what is, I feel like in my head, contextually, what is that left over from? It's from when we were classified as Jew during the Holocaust and lost our nationalities. And then to me, I'm like, oh my God, like we all have one bag packed in our minds. Like like we're all like ready for the, at least- to me, or maybe I'm saying all as like flippantly, but like to me, I'm like, I got one bag packed, ready to go one foot out the door of this fucking country. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? At all times. You're not the only one. Nope. I grew up with every time I help my dad clean out the house, I find silver packed inside sheets, you know, and uh-huh. my <laughs> my cousin Regina was the only person to survive the Holocaust in her family and her daughter is I'm going to get the exact number wrong but I swear to god it's not an ex- it's not a deliberate exaggeration her daughters hilariously reported that after she died and they realized that they had to not only search all of her pockets but also open up pillow like open up like the inside uh-huh. of pillowcases and the inside of they found I am not I'm really not attempting to exaggerate something like in cash. Right. Yes. And it's from the pogroms. It's from it all kind of, I mean, we've been attacked a lot in history and I'm sure any group that has experienced mass trauma like that will have in their own mind as they're listening to this, thinking about all the little quirks and things that have affected us throughout, you know, throughout in in their ancestral line and, and all of that. But like, I feel like it's, it creates this very immediate, fraught, emotional reaction that just all rationality goes out the window because we're just like skittering. And I don't know. And I don't even want to say that because I guess even saying skittering is like the Jewish cockroach stereotype. (laughs) We can't even help it. I know. We can't even help it. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. Something that I really bump up against is in the more religious communities, it's hard for me not to feel like the women are oppressed and that Mm. there is some real sexism built into traditional Judaism. And so how do you to, you know, think about that? Do you agree with that into some sense? That is 
such a good question because I came into Judaism as an adult through modern orthodoxy. So sort of my entry point, that was my entry point into formal Judaism by the time I had gone to, you know, had sort of had a community level um, Jewish experiences rather than being like religious. But in the orthodox community, there's a very clear belief that there are roles and that that there are roles that are oriented around gender and are very binary and are very clear to those adherents. And I see that in how the, how the tradition gets done Mm -hmm. in those communities. Like I see that they really do see these sort of two sets of roles with various tasks within them and assignments by sex and gender. And it's just, I get it. And the, older I get, the more trouble I have with it. Mm -hmm. And I've always been a feminist and was a feminist before I became Jewish and was feminist after. And I think coming into the tradition in the way that I did at the time that I did meant that I had myself really understood sort of that kind of bifurcation that existed. And I don't necessarily like it. So you know, as I'm as I'm aging, like I'm 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 actually having more and more trouble with exactly that that you say, Allison. So it's tough because there are feminist women in the tradition as well. You think about organizations like Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance, right? They've been in the mix, really trying to and living into what does equality look like in in these more traditional streams and really being a leading voice a leading feminist voice within the tradition. So within that part of the tradition. So I think it's important that, you know, it goes back to Lynn's point earlier about sort of like who holds the tradition and and who's allowed to make changes. And I think that what I'm seeing is a, is a faith and a tradition that is moving forward and is being more willing to accept changes, more willing to push the envelope. And even within Orthodox circles, really beginning to think about what's, permissible and I've got no one can see my air quotes but I've got what's permissible in the faith yeah that was really well put I won't say that I don't have really even deeply troubled personal like almost visceral negative reactions to certain experiences such as when you you know happen to visit a synagogue or whether it's an active one or a, or a historic one that has a mechitza for example I have a very visceral reaction to, I don't have as much of a, it's it's a screen that in one way or another divides and obviously in the, with the binary men and women in the in the sanctuary. I, I don't have as much of an issue with it. Often it's down the middle. Mm-hmm. I'm not taking a position on that. I'm just saying that's not what I'm referring to. What I'm referring to are the times when more, more often than not, it's been visiting older synagogues as a historical, in many cases, a, a, a historical, um, you know, the synagogue in you know, Florence or Calcutta. Right or Bombay, but I, I have had in the past a visceral reaction to being like peeled off to go to the upstairs and then sit and look through a screen. It's not just that you sit upstairs, but there's a screen like a... You're in the back. You're you're up, Women are in the back. In the back or, or even upstairs behind a screen where you really can't see. Yeah. And I have a mm-hmm. physical like repulsion reaction where I haven't even been able to sit there. I'm just explaining my own reaction. There, I, There's a much more complex way of talking about this, which that Gina has alluded to. So while I have an extreme negative reaction to anything that I consider to be an expression of structural and systematic 
sexism and patriarchy, I don't necessarily hold the Jews to a higher standard. I was going to say. What I don't like, by the same token, is when people use— this is not what you were doing, Allison. That was a genuine question. But but outside of this conversation, what I don't like is when people use that as kind of a gotcha for the Jews. And I'm like, right. show me some institution mm. anywhere that is patriarchy free. You know, again, not mm-hmm. to excuse it, right. but like, don't come for us on this one alone. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I have the same thing as Gabby, where I, on the one hand, I'm like, what's with you people? And on the other hand, I'm like, hey, back off. You know, so I have both reactions. And I do know, as, as Gina has described, that many folks are working on figuring out how to preserve what you want to preserve and evolve what you want to evolve. It's tough because feminism is about choice. And so many of the orthodox women that I've encountered in my life they're like, this is how I want to live. This is my choice. This is what I believe in. And, you know, also there's these misconceptions that they're sort of kept inside the home and they don't do anything, the women. Mm-hmm, and um, right. oftentimes the men are required to study all day. And so it is the women that are working and bringing money into the household and actually are existing out in the in the mainstream world. I think, you know, there's there are so many things that, when I was a kid, I remember I went to a synagogue where there was a mechitza and I was sitting I was sitting in the back. There's something called polisha, which you're not supposed to hear a woman's voice while you're praying because it may distract the men sexually. And I was told to quiet down because I was singing the prayers. And also, you know, things at my school required a uniform and things at my school re- covering your elbows, making sure your knees aren't mm-hmm. showing. That kind of thing is very destructive. But at the same time, it is this thing that Lynn was talking about where you're singled out in this way because you're already seen as the other. There was a great example on RuPaul's Drag Race season 12. There was a queen who wore a hijab Mm -hmm. and Jeff Goldblum was a guest and he asked somewhat innocently, but also kind of eye rolly, how do you jive wearing a, a hijab on stage as a queer person in the Muslim community? And it brought me back to All Stars 4. I'm a historian of this show. So is my son. I wish he was here right now. Oh. He'd be like, um, actually, Gabby, that was All Stars 3. So <laughs> I, It's not. It's All Stars 4 I'm because it was joking. Monet Exchange. Yes, yes, yes. And this queen wore an outfit that was re- reminiscent of the Pope. Oh, yeah. And was uh, doing a full Catholic thing. And nobody mm. on the nobody on the judging panel said, how as a queer person can you wear this mm-hmm. outfit of the Pope? But Mm. they singled out the Islamic person. And I think a lot of Jews in that risk in that moment came to the defense and and started, you know, saying, oh, no, 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 no. We don't you don't come for it's the queen named Jackie Cox. You don't come for this Muslim queen when you don't say the same exact Mm -hmm. thing to Catholic queens showing up in drag that uh, rem- that's reminiscent of Catholicism. So I think that, yes, there are it's easy to talk about patriarchal systems in uh, amongst groups that are already othered Muslims, Jews. Yeah. Even to some extent, black people like, you yeah. know, it's it's these other people that are that are not us and we're better. It's the implication of like mm. we're better. But it's hard. Totally. And this is not quite the same thing, but also something you said made me think of this. And also it goes back to like, let's don't blame just those folks. When my husband was a congregational rabbi in a very 
liberal synagogue and wonderful place. This is not specifically anything about, about that congregation at all, but just try living outside the patriarchy when your husband is, is a rabbi. Right. Rabbi's wife is a stereotype. Right. Rabbi's wife is oh a role. Oh my God. So like, and so again, I'm not speaking particularly about the congregants, just anybody who is like, first, either I was not at all interesting or I was super interesting, but not in good ways. So, you know, mm-hmm. and again, out in the world. So either I'm invisible like everyone would always ask me about his job mm-hmm. or they would be like, how, but you can be a rabbi's wife and play ice hockey. Explain, you know? And I'd be like, I don't, yeah. I don't even understand that question. <laughs> and, or, I mean, and thank goodness the structure at that synagogue was ex- like, nobody expected me to like, you know, run the sisterhood for free or teach their grade. They was not like that at all. But uh, someone said, Oh, after, <laughs> after we got married, someone asked my husband, will you, someone asked me, um, we were together. So um, someone said to me, will you be keeping your job? And David, bless his heart, said she better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so like it's just in a in a less obvious structure, but mm-hmm. it's the same stuff. It's just yeah. not as rigid, yeah. but it's the it was the same set of expect similar, similar, analogous, I would mm-hmm. say, set of expectations and and, you know, if people ask me about, even if people ask me about my job, they would ask, ask as if it were a hobby. You know, are you still, how's your, how's right. your, how's your writing? How's your, are you still, what's your, right. you know? That little thing that you do, <laughs> yeah. that you dabble doing, in. Gina did air quotes. Now I'm doing yeah. a little diminutive gesture with my hand. <laughs> right, you know? right, right. And I mean, this is true of women who are married to, you know, in a binary world, who are married to many types of people. It's not just Jews. And But I'm just saying, you don't have to be in a visibly divided by gender community to experience structural and Jewish-related patriarchal stuff. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that's also the thread coming through this really great conversation today that I think is really important is like the levels or the places where categories where further categories exist right so we talked a lot about like the orthodox right but i one of the things i want to just say is that within the orthodox there are people who look like me mm-hmm. who might have on like just a regular old scarf whatever and we're wearing jeans women who look like me and there are women who have on a shato and a hat on top of the head that they shave, mm-hmm. right so like there's so many differences and then the women who are working not working and i just i don't want to fall into within our own community, the same trap that we say gets fallen into outside of Mm -hmm. it as well in terms of overgeneralizing and not seeing the nuance and flattening ourselves Mm -hmm. in these conversations. But as different as we are within, we are so similar to other cultures and communities, Mm -hmm. especially when we think about the American experience that we force people who aren't the majority to go through. Mm. Before we move on, I'd love to just ask, like, what does Judaism mean to you? (laughs) The million dollar question. (laughs) I know. Do I get a million dollars if I answer (laughs) it? Uh, Like, how do I? I'll tell you, I'll tell you a word that just popped in into my, and I've been asked this question before and I never remember what I say the previous time. So this is a completely fresh, hot take. Um, and the word that popped into my head, Allison, when you asked that question was belonging. Mm. It's where I have a sense of belonging. Is it the only place I have a sense of belonging? Not at all. Um, do I always feel like I belong? No, 
we talked about my befuddlement earlier at the Long Amida when I didn't know it. Um, but yeah, just it feels like home. Mm. I think I'm going to pick up on your method, Lynn, where you picked a word. And I think for me, it's Judaism means both freedom and liberation to me. Mm. And we're in the middle of counting the Omer Passover just a few weeks ago. We got out of Mitzrayim, right? And like that liberatory story is the story of us. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is true now because I feel like the Jews, we as a people have a real contribution to make to what freedom looks like for everybody. Mm -hmm. So those two terms really both sing to me in terms of what I think we were put here to do and be. I love beautiful. That. Thank you. <laughs> if I had a million dollars, I'd give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, a Jew that doesn't have money, throw it out. <laughs> throw it out. Wait, what? I'm going to regret this because this conversation is not only Jews, not only Jews are listening to this. And so then I get anxiety about how this is like a very insular conversation. And like maybe we, nobody else should know about this uh -oh. stuff. But here we are. <laughs> you can send all your hate mail this way <laughs> i'm used to it would you all like to play a game show Woo! yes gina and i love games yay Woo! okay great so this game is called hypotheticals i'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations you can ask any clarifying questions you might have and then tell me what you would do in that situation and then i pick the winner arbitrarily and um, <laughs> that's my favorite type of judgment yeah. arbitrary yes like a wrathful god okay yeah just the whim of my feeling in that exact moment <laughs> okay okay <laughs> fantastic our first game is america's favorite game show would you stay with this cheater your partner of three years is notoriously competitive one night, while out with their friends, their single friend declares that if he tried, he could make out with five people in one night, which is the most possible. Oh, my God. Your partner sees this as a challenge and tries to win by making out with six people in one night. They only make it to three. Would you stay with this cheater? Allison, that's not even like, <laughs> what? that I, y y we need a do-over. That's no. Okay. So it's hard to believe that that would come out of the blue either. So, so query whether we should have stayed with this cheater from day one, even before, like if it's gotten to this point, then like what other challenges has he, you know, or they accepted before? I mean, no. I don't care about any other previous challenges because that's just, that's just icky. It's just icky. Well, that what I mean is like, I can't believe that everything would have been great up to this point. And then all of a sudden you'd be like, wait a minute, this fellow is suspect. Like, like, yeah, hard right. pass. Well, you yeah, have been, you've been to couples therapy for months working on accepting their <laughs> competitive nature. No, he swore he would go to six sessions and he only went to three. <laughs> no, See I did he that? said yeah. six and he said yeah, he no. did six because he's competitive. Oh, yeah, right. Because his friend only went to four. See, yeah, no, hard pass. No, no. Yeah, no. We no. would not stay. I mean, I, th that's the thing. But I appreciate, Allison, that you were picking up on not the kissing. But the competitive. But the competition, yeah. right? Because, like... Because I don't, I mean, honestly, you can kiss whoever you want to. And like, I mean, I, I would not care. 
But to get in on the contest at the like, yeah, that's, that's the icky part. Yes, that's the icky hard part. hard to trust. Hard pass. It, for me, assuming it's a dude for me, like back when I was looking for dudes, the first trait I was not looking for was, but is he competitive? Like, at, you know, at Bananagrams, sure. <laughs> but yeah, at making out, no. But he has brought home millions of dollars competing on game shows. I do want to let you know that. Oh, oh now you tell I, us. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. Uh, no, I'm going. No. I don't trust it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm on some sort of kick where I'm like, I don't trust. I don't trust. No. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> no. If he's that smart and competitive, no. then he can be like, okay. He, he could say to the friend, like, okay, fun. I like competition. Let's make different stakes. Like, he wasn't like, I'm stuck. I have no choice in this yeah. matter. I must make up with my, make up with all the women. Like, I, come on. No. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Not well played. All right. So sort of universal across the board, not staying. I understand. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? But uh, that that's the wrong answer. No. No! <laughs> Nobody wins? Is that what I'm hearing? Nobody won that's, that round? That's a lesson in not being competitive. Nobody won. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> okay. Our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, 20, doesn't have any friends in college. And comes home every weekend because, quote, you are my best friend and I only want to hang out with you. You are their entire social life and you don't stay up past 10. Are you a terrible parent? And you don't stay up past 10. So what do they do after 10? They go to sleep, too. Oh. And they're home every weekend from college just to hang out with you because you're the only person they ever want to hang out with. I'm a terrible parent if I if I allow it to continue. Hmm. I was going to say, I think I'm a terrible parent if I didn't raise someone who could have figured out some support mechanisms. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like like for real, for real, as a parent, and I recognize that we all have our limitations, our challenges as human beings. But assuming that I've got the kids I have right now, if I send them out into the world and they couldn't make some friends, they couldn't find some people who needed some help, they couldn't find one person online offline like I would feel like I failed as a parent if they liked me more than anybody else too so I have to give myself a thumbs down on this one I agree with Gina with one margin of error and this is like not to be a total buzzkill but I 100% agree with you the margin of error is just like sometimes especially now when there's some like mental health stuff going on like they're not making friends and I, totally. I will not embarrass no, anyone totally. in my household by going into detail. But like sometimes it's just not happening. So with that's yeah. the margin of yep. error. But in the but in the spirit of levity, I'd be like, march yourself back to school and start singing a cappella or something. I don't know. But there are built-in communities yep. for you. You don't even have to make friends. Like, and that's actually like maybe making friends is the hard part. You can have activities without making friends. And I don't mean to be cold, but you can find yourself in part of a community where you can do parallel play and enjoy shared experiences even before or without developing a deeper friendship. And I think that would be the opportunity. So, yeah, if I let them hang out with me in Netflix and chill for the semester, then, yeah, I'm definitely I'm definitely the bad parent. Oh, I don't know if you know what Netflix and chill means. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Yes, Lynn wins. Lynn wins. She's the bad parent. Right now, I'm just the mortified parent. I'm the mortified, no. mortified parent. Gina's, Gina did say that there might not be, there might be people that need your help. 
And so I agree, you're a bad parent because <laughs> even if you're not making friends, even if you don't want to join an activity, there's volunteer work for you to do. Mm-hmm. You selfish jerk. Walk a dog. Walk <laughs> a dog. Wow. This took a real turn. <laughs> I only wrote this one because I love hanging out with my mom so much. Aww. Wow. <laughs> it's also true. Aww. I have one of those. One of my children likes hanging out with me, Aww. too. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah, 50% of mine do. Yeah. I know I'm supposed to have other friends, but I only have them because I know I'm supposed to. Um, <laughs> that's, hey. Listen, fake, it, fake it till you make it. Whatever it takes. Allison loves her yeah. mom. Loves her mom. That's okay. Nice. Our final game. This is a doozy. Wait, who won that one? Uh, my mom won that one. Mm, okay. um, ha, she Got truly it. did. Yeah. Shout out to Ruth Raskin. Okay. So our final game. Would you forgive this liar? Bear with me. It's a little complicated. You have asked everyone in your life to set you up with someone. And an old college friend reaches out to say they have someone great in mind. The only thing is that the person just got out of a long relationship. So you should probably take it slow. You reach out to this potential match. Say you have a mutual friend and ask them to get coffee. Coffee turns into lunch, which turns into dinner, where your potential match breaks down because they have been feeling guilty for, quote, almost cheating. It turns out that your potential match is still very much in a relationship and thought you knew that. Your friend lied to you because she thought you two would be much more compatible and it would get your potential match out of an unhealthy relationship. Would you forgive this liar? No. No way. That's so bad. Gina is still like frozen. Gina's considering. <laughs> you, broke, you broke her. Gina looked like Zoom frozen. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out, are these people related? Are they friends? Was it just friends? Or is there any sort of, I, I mean, because. Be- <laughs> You're trying to wonder in what situation would you understand their, them doing that? Like if it's a brother or something? Right. Like the the desperation that someone like the place that a relationship must be for someone to to go out of their way to (laughs) to lie about it, to get someone to date that person, to get them out of the relationship. Like right. And to throw that other person under the bus like they're throwing two. I mean, this happened to me. It did. Remember? At BuzzFeed, there was a guy who I liked and we a- and you had a mutual friend w- with him. And we asked that person if this guy was in a relationship and she told us no, but he <gasps> was in a relationship. You don't remember this, Gabby? <gasps> I don't. But I but that who I want to know who this liar is. <laughs> it was just so, it was just somebody you knew because they thought you would be a better partner for that person and that person was in such a bad relationship right I don't think it was such a bad relationship I think it was like a long distance relationship that they thought was like Uh, fizzling out okay okay so now yeah now we're okay okay, see I thought if someone was in danger right right right. if they were you Mm. know being harmed and like this was going to be like that's where I was going that maybe I could see trying to you know pull some strings but we're all thinking <sighs> we're not going to forgive this liar, even if you end up with this potential match. It's it's manipulative. It's Wait, you end up with them? Yeah. 
I would characterize it as, as manipulating. I don't think it's fair to manipulate people in that way. It's very much like, it's just, it's like TV show stuff. It's not, you can't actually treat people that way. I don't, it's, yeah, that's right. It's the manipulation for me. <laughs> so you would not forgive this manipulator? No. <laughs> I'll be honest that there are very few people I haven't forgiven. So, like, you get it. You're better than us. I'm a better Jew than all of you. So, happy um, young to us all. Circle. <laughs> so, like, I, I, no, but for real, I, I feel like never forgiving them. I kind of want to know, like, why. And it's not cool. It is manipulative. It's all of those things. But I also don't leave people behind. And I try not to, like, was I. How harmed was I by that incident? It might take me a while, but I will probably eventually get around to forgiving. Well, them. Gina goes in the goddamn book of life. No, that's fair. And all of us <laughs> go nowhere. I forgot that the standard was, do you ever forgive them? I mean, I like if you ask me yes, no, is this wrong? The answer is definitely wrong. Would I ever forgive them? It depends on what relationship I have with them in the first place. You know, I don't know. They're your old college friend. Oh, my old college <laughs> friend. Depends on how much I want to stay friends with them. I don't know. Ugh. I love how Allison's real life seeps into these games. This is really great. Right. Oh, and yeah. also that it's drawing from personal experience. It's drawing from Allison's imaginative brain. It's really <laughs> special and beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to you guys for being our guests. Where can people find you uh, and more about you? Where do we start, Gina? We can, you can start by listening to A Bintel Brief, the Jewish Advice Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And then Gina, want to say anything, anything else about you? What do I say? So, yeah, listen to us wherever you find your podcasts. And then also you can find out more about me on my company's website, upriseforgood.com, if you want to know more about the work that I do. You can find out more about me and the company I run, uh, which is called Gold Comedy. We're the comedy school and creative network and content development company for women and non-binary folks. Goldcomedy.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you both. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about first impressions. Hi. Hello. That was one. <laughs> Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for topics. X, 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 baby. Baby. First impressions, I didn't like beans right away. Your dog? Yes. Here's the thing, is and I and it's hard to say this because he's so perfect and wonderful. And it and and obviously I'm not a great judge of character. Historically, we know that. But I went in, I didn't want to care about him at all from the picture. My partner at the time was like, he's perfect. I was like, whatever. We went with my partner at the time and my sister. They loved him right away. And I was like, eh. I didn't, that was like, I didn't want, this is not the dog for me. I was like, I don't know. I don't want a dog that sheds. I don't want a dog that is like a little, like, what am I going to do with this? Like roly poly little dog. I wanted a bigger dog. And then I was like, I don't know. And they talked me into getting him. And I was like, fine. And then for the first like day, I was like, why? And then I, I know. And then now he is literally the love of my life. And when he goes, I will go. Like, so you never know, like you really never know, like your first impression of, someone or something might have to like grow over time. 
People hate, Mal hates when I say I didn't like beans right away. It makes Mal very upset. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I don't know how much first impressions matter. And I think, I think for some people, they want to be right. So they will ah. hold on to their first impression of someone regardless. But I don't think that that's necessarily the right approach. Like today I was in a, a like a grumpy mood and I was walking the dogs and these people who I think are my neighbors, like walked by and like interacted with Phantom. And I was like, if this was another day, I would be so much more friendly. And right. I would be like, oh, do you live on this street? We just moved in. Blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Like I would have been like a totally different version of myself. Mm -hmm. But today, because I was in a bad mood, I like barely said a word to them. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting impression. <laughs> yeah. I always think about that when people say someone's quiet or someone's like, because mm -hmm. I'm like, that. Well, were they comfortable with you? It's also funny because sometimes I will be so sure that it's the other person who's the problem. Like, I'll be like, oh, what a pill. But then other times I walk away and I'm like, what, Gabby, what is wrong with you? Like, why are you like this? Like, I have like a, a, a social hangover or I have like a, a, you know, I'll go through what I was like. And even in the moment, sometimes as I'm talking to someone for the first time in my head, I'm going, what the fuck are you saying? Stop it. <laughs> I also think sometimes it's important when you're like, oh, did I give a good first impression to be like, did this person even allow me the time to really give an impression? Or yeah. did they sort of steamroll or can, you know, like take over the majority of that interaction? Yeah. So it can feel like, oh, well, I didn't even let them see who I was. But it's like maybe they didn't give you space to. Yeah. I had a thing where I met someone and that I like admire and I was just kind of rambling. And I was like, oh, that. And then I said to Mal, like, oh, I didn't do a good job there. And Mal was like, is it possible that they're just like not funny? And like they didn't have a rapport with you, like they weren't giving you anything. And I was like, oh, yeah, like maybe I'm <laughs> not the problem. Maybe they weren't giving me anything. And so I'm forced to fill the gaps because you're not funny. So one thing that I have, I don't know how to feel about this, is I'm very friendly. And I mm -hmm. know that there is a big group of people people who I'm very politically aligned with who think that expecting friendliness from other people isn't right. And that like, mm -hmm. it, and that it's like not fair to expect other people to be like friendly upon interaction. Mm -hmm. And I have a hard time with that because I really like being friendly and I like when people are friendly back to me, <laughs> but I yeah. also know that it's like often rooted in like gender stereotypes and yeah. like not, not fair expectations. But I get a, I get even more upset when men aren't friendly. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what do you have to be upset about? Say hello. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. Is this a bad take to have? Like, it's a no. it feels like a personal preference, but I, I really appreciate when people are friendly. <laughs> yeah, it's a personal preference. If you were going around and somebody wasn't friendly to you and you were like, smile, you dumb bitch, then it would be a problem. <laughs> But because you're just like, yeah, I get it. It's a personal preference. And I, th I think I usually don't take people at their first impression. I usually mm. it takes a few times and I usually will my if they impress me later on or if they are actually they they I will change my impression of someone immediately to the point that I might not even remember what my first impression was like. I will change my mind so fast for so many different reasons. If someone was boring 
And then they they say, you know, I, I read some of their work or I watch some of their art and it's actually really good. Then I'm like, oh, OK, I know you better. I understand you a little better. You're not actually that boring. Or, you know, someone will be like, it's funny because like someone will be like annoying. And then as soon as Drew and I talk about like someone could be so annoying. And then as soon as they are trans, we're like, oh, you're I see you're annoying because you're covering for so-. like all of a sudden they're given like such a benefit of the doubt where we're like, oh, OK. And that could come also from being like, oh, you're like me. I see I'm projecting. I'm able to like put something on you, you know, that is like why you're this way or it suddenly becomes charming. I don't know. I don't have time to unpack it. But you know, it's like there's definitely people that I was annoyed by at first. And I have later come to realize that the reason it, they annoyed me at first is because they reminded me of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I and also getting to know people, it just changes so fast. And then you start to realize like what to take personally and what not to take personally. I have a friend that everyone is like, she hates me. She absolutely hates me. She there, there's no way this person like, you know, they think that she's super unfriendly, which she is. But it's it's a matter of if that is so off putting to you that you just don't even try. Or if you're someone who's like, yeah, whatever, like, that's fine. And you go past that. But it's a personal preference. Yeah. And I also think that, like, we don't um, appreciate enough how different people are in different environments. And that that's not people being fake. That's just the reality of life that different environments and different situations bring out different parts of us. And so meeting someone in a work scenario versus a social scenario versus a family scenario, like Mm -hmm. you're going to probably be introduced to different parts of who they are. Completely, completely. And taking into account like who else is there and, you know, it's yeah. I mean, what do you think about For me, for dating, I have never gone off a first impression. Like for dating, it's always like my first impression is always wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a mix. I think, you know, I, I have historically dated a lot of people who are more subdued in uh, social settings versus individual. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of times when I've introduced partners, I'm like, oh, they have no idea who my partner is because I know that they're not getting like a sense of the person that I see. And so that's an interesting mm-hmm. thing where I'm like, I can, I've had people that have hung out with, you know, partners, ex-partners of mine for a long time. And, and I'm like, oh, they've never, they don't really see the full thing the way I do. Yeah. But now being with John, who's someone who has a very gregarious personality within like five minutes, I'm like, oh, people know who I'm dating. <laughs> like, He's so friendly. He's so He's like, if he, if I was like broken down on the side of the road and he drove up, I would like get in the car and go to the gas yeah. station. Like he is so personable that he might actually be a serial killer. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. But um, so it is sort of nice to now be with somebody who I feel like is um, their like authentic self easier with others faster. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think the problem with like going based off a first impression for dating, if that first impression is wrong for me, is that you're holding on to your belief of who that person was. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, from but but they're this person because that's who I met. And then, you know, three weeks in, there's someone totally different. But for me, I'm guilty of holding on to the relationship because I'm like, no, but they were this. (laughs) And it's like, right. And that was their personality didn't show for dogs. You don't know their real personality till like a year and a half in. They got to get comfortable so they know you won't return them to the pound. 
I'm not a year and a half in yet, but I think I know Phantom and he is, he's a wild child. Let me tell you. I No, actually my first impression of Phantom, we went to Wags and Walks because we were going to foster him. And normally when they take the dog out of the crate, the dog is like cowering and upset and scared. They took Phantom out of the crate and his tail was wagging. He was thrilled. (laughs) We were like, oh, this is a happy, happy boy. And he has proven to be just that. (laughs) Aww. Beans, I will say, like, didn't bark for the first year and a half. He never made a sound. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, he now, like, will bark if someone rings the doorbell. And my mom, even my mom went, is that Beans? And I was like, (laughs) he's not who you think he is. (laughs) But the other part about all of this is that people change, right? So how valid can your first impression be if the person's actively changing all of the time? Mal didn't like me. When Mal first met me, Mal didn't like me at all. I have to tell you, that's something I've always respected about Mal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because I put on a persona, it's exactly. Exactly. I wasn't there for that interaction, but I I know at that time in your life what kind of personas you would put on. Right. And I'm glad that 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 Mal found that off putting. Yeah, well, it's fake, you know, and Mal will say being a public figure, a lot of you don't get to control your first impression to a lot of people. And a lot of people don't like me. Like sometimes there's a public figure where everyone's like, yay, we love it. I'm divisive. And and the people that don't like me, I'm I've learned to be like, well, I don't like everyone, so okay, you don't like me. Say la vie. But you know, a lot of it is based on a persona that isn't actually me. If you met me on the street, if you met me at a party, you know, Mal's like people think of you as this abrasive, like loud, talkative person, but like you're like a very sensitive, kind, you know, like you know, Mal's like this isn't what you're like. So the people that don't like you, they don't actually know you. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I guess. But then also, if you listen to this show and you do like me, then this is what I'm like. <laughs> and never doubt it. Well, Melissa isn't here with us today. So I think we have to we have to head right into ratings. Just the two of us. What what do you rate this episode? I rate it 11 out of 10 commandments. <laughs> Very He's trying to do a joke. Thank you. <laughs> I will rate it. 15 out of 13 direct conversations with your potential mentor. I love it. Thank you to Gina Green and Lynn Harris for being our guests. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa Big D Monts. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Bohm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or on our channel, youtube.com slash justbetweenusshow. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, at Allison Raskin and at Gabby Road on Instagram. Allison has a book out. It's called Overthinking About You. Please go get it. I think by the time this airs, uh, my script original stimulus rack will also be out. But Allison's book is a real book, so get that. Okay, bye. Woo. Forever. Yeah.